One day a few weeks ago, while we were just getting ready to get into this series and I was beginning to work on, work on the messages, I had scheduled a bunch of meetings around town and I kind of scheduled them back to back to back to back to back. And I started off here, out here in West Boca. I live sort of in the middle of Palmetto and Powerline, so, you know, five miles away or so. So, of course, I miscalculated how long it would take me to get from my house out west, and I had to rush. And that means I had to speed, just in case, you know, you weren't clear on that. So I had to rush to try to get there on time, and I didn't get there on time. I arrived late, and, of course, I was all stressed out. And you guys know I talk a lot, so I talk too much. And that meeting went long, which made me late for my next meeting, which was all the way out east. So I sped out there, and I arrived late and stressed. And I did have the thought, you know, I probably should be better about scheduling my meetings like that. But I was quickly distracted from that thought by everybody else on the road who was doing the exact same thing. Well, on my way to the next meeting, of course I was running late, and I pulled up at the stoplight, obviously paying attention to which cars were at this stoplight in front of me, trying to get behind the cars that looked like they were going to go faster, that sort of thing. So I pull up at the stoplight, and an older woman pulls up next to me, in a huge Crown Victoria, you know those cars that they use them for police cruisers, it's just these giant land yacht kind of cars. And she pulls up next to me and she looks at me and I was waiting for the look, but it wasn't, it was a smile. So she smiled and she rolled down her window and she asked me to roll down mine. So I did. And when I rolled down my window, still smiling, she said to me, Slow down. <laughs> See, those of you who are laughing know me well enough to know I did not appreciate that suggestion. She wasn't wrong, mind you. I just didn't feel like hearing it. I rarely feel like hearing it. I told you I didn't want to preach this series, didn't I? But I really do need to take that kind of advice to heart, and I think we all do. So this is week two of a three-part series that we're calling The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It is not a clever title. It's the exact title of the exact book that I read, and that's what I'm helping us get through, go through. It was written by a pastor out west in Oregon by the name of John Mark Comer. It was recommended to me by another pastor friend of mine from our network, the Irresistible Church Network. And I'm doing this series because we have finally entered the most wonderful time of the year, right? Isn't it exciting? Who has their house decorated? Anybody? Nobody, really. Oh, one, two. Beth got to the rest of you, huh? Yeah, she says we can't do it till after Thanksgiving. But for many people, this is the time of year when the weather cools and people's thoughts turn to the holidays. And for us, of course, it's a time of year when we can buy everything pumpkin spiced, right? Coffee and creamer and syrups and 
So everything's pumpkin spice, but we still complain about the heat and humidity. So that's what it is for us this time of year, the holiday time of year. But we also do, and this is one of the fun things about being in South Florida during this time of year, we get to see how creatively people can decorate palm trees, right? Has anyone tried this yet, the decorate all the way up and the, the top thing? No? It seems to, like, it's dangerous. Like, you get up on a ladder and I'm not going to try it. But anyway, that's what time of year, year it is. But it's also the time of year when hurry and stress in our lives is at the absolute peak. It's at its worst. And even though most of us would kind of say, yeah, I guess, I guess that. I know it instinctively. Researchers have actually confirmed that hurry, stress, and exhaustion, are you sitting? They're not good for us. Did you know that? And for followers of Jesus, they're not a part of the life that our Heavenly Father has called us to live. So last week we talked about the problem of hurry. And if you missed the message, please go to hammockstreetchurch.com. Click on our messages. You can, you can listen to or watch the message there. Also on our YouTube channel, you can find it. We talked about that problem of hurry, and we talked about how hurry is a great enemy to the spiritual life. And we concluded with this observation. We concluded by observing that hurry kills our joy and our gratitude and our appreciation. Not only that, hurry kills our spirituality, our connection to God. It, it kills our health. It kills our marriages. It kills our families. It kills our creativity. It kills our generosity. It kills just about all the virtues we hold dear. Hurry is a sociopathic predator loose in our society. So that's what we talked about last week. And this week, we're going to talk about the solution to our hurry problem. And then next week, we'll finish up by looking at four practices. We'll give you some tools for unhurrying your life. All right? That's what we're doing. That's where we are. Won't you pray with me now, and then we will get going. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together here this morning. Thank you for the willing hearts and minds that you have brought here today to understand you a little bit better, to draw closer to you a little bit more, and to learn what it means to follow. God, we ask that as we continue on this morning, that we would feel your presence and that we would understand what it is to be a follower of Jesus. We love you, God. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the solution, that's what we're talking about today, the solution. Now, in the book, Comer begins by addressing a commonly believed solution for our hurry problem. And tell me you haven't had this. Don't you think our hurry problem would be eliminated if we just had more time. Maybe if there were 28 hours in a day instead of 24. Maybe if there were more hours in a day, I could get more done. I could, I could finish that project, or I could sleep more, or I could start that workout program, or, or I could eat better. I could prep my meals or something, or, or I could spend more time with my spouse or, or my kids or my friends. Maybe if I had more hours in a day, I could learn another language, or I could learn to play an instrument, or maybe I could even go back to school. A lot of us think if I had extra hours in my day, I'd go to church every week. I'm going to say that one again. If I had, no, that's okay. Maybe you say, if I had more hours in a day, I'd volunteer to help other people, or maybe I'd clean up the beach, or I'd come to the church building and 
tidy up around here, put some mulch down maybe. Maybe I'd read my Bible more if I had more hours in the day. Maybe I'd pray every day. I'd have a space to pray. Or maybe I'd read a devotional. If only there were more hours in the day. But that's not how it works, is it? It's not how it works. It's never how it works. Even if it were possible to lengthen our days, we wouldn't add anything productive. I know us. We'd just do what we're already doing. We'd just do it slower or maybe do more of it. See, more time is not the solution to the hurry problem. The solution to the hurry problem is that we desperately, desperately need to slow down. The Crown Victoria lady was right. We need to slow down. We need to focus our lives on the things that really matter. And if you're thinking that slowing down is not what the world does, that slowing down is countercultural, well, congratulations, you're finally starting to get it. Yes, our calling to follow Jesus is a calling to do things that go counter to the way that the world works. Because we were not created for this world. We were created for something much, much better. In chapter 17 of John's Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John's Gospel, Jesus prayed for us. People refer to this as the high priestly prayer. But he prayed for us. He prayed to his Father. And here's what he said, John 17, 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Did you catch that? Jesus said, we're not of the world, but we're supposed to stay in the world. My prayer is, that you, is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Leave them there to impact the people, protect them from the devil. We were not called to act the same way the world acts. We were called to something higher. But we were assigned to stay here in the midst of this broken, sin-infected world so that we can serve as an example. An example to and an encouragement for the lost people around us. And then we can point them to a much better way. We can point them to the much better way of Jesus. God created us with the incredible potential to do magnificent things for him. But he also created us with a built-in limitation because we're not him. We're not infinite and we're not immortal. You get that? By design, the way God made us, we have God-given potential, and also by design, we have God-given limitations. Now, as Comer points out, one of the key tasks of an apprenticeship to Jesus, that's a discipleship, apprenticeship, methodus, it's the same concept. One of the key tasks of our apprenticeship is living both fully into our potential and fully into our limitations. Both are equally important. Now that's countercultural, isn't it? Think about it. We live in a culture in which we are trained every single day, every minute of every day, that we can do it all. We can do everything. For instance, our culture can't seem to get enough of 
life hacks. How many people have watched a life hack online, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook? You've seen the life hacks, right? What are life hacks? They're those little tips and tricks that we can learn that will help us do life better than everybody else around us. That's a life hack. And we're told that if we do all the things, right, if we read all the right books and all the good shows, we see all the good shows and we go to all the trendy places, if we, if we buy into this never-ending quest for more with sayings like YOLO, that's what that is. You only live once, you may as well do everything. YOLO. And if you don't do it, you know what you're going to suffer from? FOMO, that's right, fear of missing out, yeah. If we do all this stuff, we're told we'll win. We will win life. Yay, you won. But instead, trying to do everything only adds to stress and hurry in our lives. And it doesn't have to be that way. And we can begin to reorient our lives on the important things by remembering this one simple fact. Ready? Here it is. It's going to shock you. We can't do it all. Period. Hard stop. We can't do it all. We are not God. We're not omniscient, which means we're not all-knowing. We're not omnipotent. We're not all-powerful. We're not omnipresent. We don't exist everywhere at all times, and we never will be. I was having lunch with a friend earlier. I was imparting some of my old guy wisdom on him, you know, when your beard turns gray, you know, people come to you for advice and stuff, and I told him, just how much happier I became once I began to understand both who I am and who I'm not. The who I'm not part is hard. When you're young, my, my boys are in their 20s and they're working on figuring out who, who they are. That's what you do at the beginning and eventually you get to a place where you go, well, who aren't I? Who am I not? Knowing ourselves and the unique, fearful, and wonderful way in which God has made us is the first step toward our being able to focus our lives on the things that really matter, while we also are able to push away, push aside those things that seem like fun, that we kind of would like to do, but in the end they just unproductively or unhealthily steal our time away from us. And not only that, knowing our limitations helps us to avoid violating a commandment. Did you know this? One of the commandments deals with limitations. Here's what it is. The 10th commandment, you shall not covet. See, once we recognize our own limitations and come to love the way that God has uniquely designed each of us and uniquely provided for each of us, once we come to know that, we can take comfort in and we can even feel joy when we're in the presence of someone who does something much better than we ever can. Instead of feeling jealousy, we can say, wow, that's really good. I'm really happy for you. That's fantastic. Now, the reasons we're limited in this life, there are lots and lots of reasons. Some are genetic. You know, I, I wanted to play football for the Miami Dolphins. Um, when I was growing up, I was pretty sure I was going to be a fullback. Not built like a fullback. Never will be. And I'm the slowest person you've ever met. So that wasn't happening. So it's genetic. But they're also emotional, or social, or economic, or historical. There's all sorts of reasons for our limitations. But our limitations, as well as the gifts and talents that we have, they are what they are. And to this end, Comer points out a stunning truth. Jesus didn't come to help us overcome all of our limitations. 
Jesus didn't come to make poor people middle class or to make middle class people wealthy. That's not why he came. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus proclaimed blessing upon the poor. Remember, blessed are the poor in spirit. But then he sent them home still poor. They were blessed, but they were still poor. See, Jesus came to make wounded people whole. Jesus came to bring those who were dead to God to eternal life with God. And while sometimes that can lead to material success, sometimes that can lead to riches, sometimes it it doesn't. And sometimes it's in the limitations that we have in our lives. It's in those things that show us God's will for our lives. And one of the limitations that we all share, regardless of our origin stories or our IQs or our physical stature or our physical strength, one of the things we all share is our limitation on time. Whether we're rich or poor, old or younger, college educated or practically educated, none of us, not one of us has more than 24 hours each day. That means that doing it all is simply not an option. In fact, that means we have to boil life down to a series of choices. You see, everything we choose to do gives rise to a thousand things that we have chosen to not do. We can't be in two places at once. That's another one that's real tough. You you ever find that you're doing something, but you're wishing you had done the other thing? Or you're wondering what's going on at the other place that you chose to not go to because you went to the place that you did go to? We have to learn to say no sometimes. Some of my heroes in this world are people who are really good at saying no. We have to learn to, instead of living reactively, to live deliberately. That is the former First Baptist Church of West Palm Beach. I think it's got a new name now. But years ago, I went to the funeral of a guy named Bud Yokely. None of you know Bud Yokely. He was one of the founding partners of the law firm that I was working in at the time. And when I went to his funeral, I didn't know Jesus yet. And his funeral was one of my earliest church experiences. I had never really been in a church, maybe in a few Catholic churches, when friends had siblings that were being christened or whatever, but I really had no experience. But I was in this Baptist church for Bud's funeral, and two moments stood out for me. The first thing was the pastor talked about sin and salvation through faith in Jesus at Bud Yokely's funeral. And I sat there and I felt really offended. I remember thinking, and, I, and this was my thought, I thought, what the, what the heck? Why is this guy using Bud's funeral to tell everybody to believe in Jesus? How rude is that? <laughs> Little did I know, <laughs> which shows you got us a great sense of humor. <laughs> But the second thing I remember was this. I remember Bud's eulogy, all the people that came up to talk about Bud and remember Bud and all that. Everyone came up and talked about his work. That's all they talked about. They only talked about his work, how hard he worked, how many hours he'd build, how successful his work had been. There was no mention of his family, probably because he'd abandoned most of his family by that point. There was no talk about his wife of more than 50 years. I later found out that he was a terrible husband. And they didn't mention any of his friends, probably because he didn't have any friends. He only had professional colleagues. I also learned later on that he had never darkened the doors of that church. He'd been in there as often as I had, never. And having the funeral there was his wife's idea. 
which I'm sure was her way of getting some sort of revenge on him for the way he was when they were together. And I remember thinking, and I had this thought, why I had this thought, I have no idea, but I remember thinking, I wonder whether when Bud was on his deathbed, he was lamenting all of the important things that he had foregone because he wanted to bill hours to his clients. He did a lot of work for those clients over all those years. One of the things actually is interesting, somebody bragged about is the fact that Bud billed seven hours, not quite eight, but he billed seven hours, almost a full day, on the last day that he worked. That's what a great guy he was. He was able to bill almost a full day right before he died. Comer wonders whether such a person on their deathbed has thoughts such as these. He wonders, did the deceased lament how they started a business but ended a marriage? Did they lament how they got their kids into their dream colleges but never taught them the way of Jesus? Did they lament how they got a bunch of letters after their name, BA, JD, LLM, but they learned the hard way that intelligence is not the same as wisdom? Did they lament the fact that they made a lot of money but never grew rich in the things that really mattered? which ironically aren't things at all, they're relationships with people? Did they lament the way that they watched all 14 seasons of whatever they binged, but never learned to love prayer? The truth is, most of us waste so much of our lives chasing ultimately meaningless things. And by the way, I want to tell you, I'm not here to make you feel guilty. I'm not throwing rocks at you. I do these things too. But for most of us, the hurry and overload from which we suffer is completely self-inflicted. This is really interesting. Some of these stats are going to upset you a little bit. In a 2012 article, which is 10 years ago, right, entitled The Demise of Guys, 10 years ago, the author noted that by age 21, the average guy, okay, you can't say boy and you can't say man because there's this weird gray area now between 18 and 40 that, so they say guy here, just so you know. But by the age of 21, the average guy, as of 10 years ago, spent over 10,000 hours playing video games. 10,000 hours. By the way, in the last 10 years, that's only gone up, right? Now, numerous researchers have determined, you can Google this, it's everywhere, have determined that a person can master any craft or become an expert in any field if they can devote 10,000 hours to studying it. So in 10,000 hours, you can learn to speak a new language. You can learn to play an instrument. You can learn how to invest your money. You can even get your undergraduate degree and your master's degree in 10,000 hours. Or you can beat level four on Call of Duty. When my kids were little, I remember our kids were into that guitar hero thing. They're getting really good at it. And I remember saying to my younger son, Quinn, dude, if you spend as much time learning how to play the guitar as you've spent learning how to play guitar hero, you'd be a pretty decent guitarist. He did take my advice, by the way. But think about it. How we spend our time is how we spend our lives. For instance, it is well established, I don't think I'll get any argument here, it's well established that reading is a very good thing to do, right? Reading is a very good thing to do. Here are some of the benefits of reading, okay? 
Reading is good for your mind. It, it, it's, it's good for your brain. It, it helps you stay engaged. It's good for your memory. It's good for you to learn empathy. You learn vocabulary words when you read a lot. You pick up knowledge when you read a lot. Your imagination expands because you're not just being fed what the things are. You, you're envisioning them in your mind. You're, you can concentrate more if you start reading early. You learn how to write better if you read. Reading has so many benefits. And if you want to become an avid reader, and becoming an avid reader, an avid reader reader is a person who reads 200 books a year, at least, and everybody just choked when I said that. 200 books a year. You know how many hours reading 200 books a year will take you? 417 hours. That's, that's a little bit over an hour a day. Does that seem like a lot of time? Does it? Want to guess how much time the average American spends on social media every year? Average, 912 hours. By the way, again, that's gone way up. You want to know how much time the average American spends watching television every year? Right around 2,400 hours. We know that reading is good for us. We know that reading is important, yet we don't do it. And if that's true about reading, how much more true is it about our lives with God? Think about it. In the 20 minutes we spend, and I'm going to apologize up front for this attack, but in the 20 minutes we spend playing Wordle or Sudoku, we could pray for all of the people in our lives, for all of our family and all of our friends. In the hour before bed that we spend watching television to wind down, we could take that time and read through the entire Bible two times every year. In the time that we spend running errands and being frustrated by the crowds and by the angry people, we could for real, legitimately practice the Sabbath. We could devote one-seventh of our lives to rest, worship, and celebration of our journey through God's world. We would waste a lot of time. In his letter to the Jesus followers in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul wrote this. He said in Ephesians 5, Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Here it is making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Now, Comer pointed out that the next-to-last phrase, making the most of every opportunity, can be translated from the Greek in a few ways. It can be making the most of every opportunity, it can be redeeming the time, and it can also be making the most of every chance you get. Every day, we get a chance. Every hour, we get an opportunity. Every moment, we're given a gift. And the question is, how will you spend those things? Will you squander them on trivial things? Or will you invest them in the eternal kind of life? All right, so now I've set the stage here. So now here's the question. So how do we do better? How do we live deliberately? How do we make the most of every opportunity, especially in the midst of our fast-moving, thoroughly distracting, fleshy world? Well, Jesus said, come follow me. You knew I was going back here, right? You, you knew I was going to take this back to Jesus, right? Good. Okay. See, there is a correlation between hurry and spirituality. So what did Jesus say about our hurry problem? Well, let's have a, have a look because this is really interesting. Jesus was, we call him a carpenter. Actually, it's probably more accurate to say he was a stonemason. He was a builder. 
There's not a lot of wood in that part of the world, but there's an awful lot of stone. So Jesus was a carpenter, but he was also, or a stonemason or a builder, he was also a rabbi, right? You know that. Now, rabbi is the Hebrew word for teacher. So while Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Christ, the Savior, he's the Savior of the world, he's the anointed one. In human terms, Jesus was a teacher. Jesus was a rabbi. And every rabbi had two things. And one of those things, the first thing was a yoke. Okay, a rabbi's yoke, which in Hebrew is the word tzemed, referred to a rabbi's particular interpretation of the scripture. Now, this gets a little interesting, so stay with me here. The Jewish faith is characterized by the Jews' obedience to the 613, they're called halakhic laws, that are derived from the Torah. So the sages have read the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the book of the law. That's the Torah. And from those five books, there are all these laws that they're able to find. Well, that's a law. That's a law. That's a law. They take the Ten Commandments. A lot of the laws build protection around those Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's a commandment. The Jews have decided we don't drive on the Sabbath. That's a law. That's a protection law. Okay, you got that? So, so scholars have looked at these laws, these 613 laws derived from the Torah, and interpreted them over the years. So every scholar, every rabbi takes a look at the laws and sort of interprets them. Now, though the law never changes, the interpretation of that law varies from teacher to teacher. We kind of know that because we have different denominations and there are different ways to interpret certain things in the scripture, so it's similar. Anyway, when a student took a rabbi's yoke, the student was adopting that rabbi's interpretation of the law as their own. So you take on the interpretation of your rabbi. Remember the apostle Paul studied under the famous rabbi Gamaliel, so Paul took on Gamaliel's yoke. That student agreed to live the Torah life just like their teacher did. Now, a yoke is also what? It's a farm implement. It's a wooden cross piece that is fastened over the necks of two animals and attached to a plow or a cart or a whatever they're supposed to pull. Now, it's interesting. The word or term yoke appears 61 times in the Bible. That's a lot, okay? But 54 of those times... And only seven of the times it's, a, it's called a collar. 54 of those times it's used idiomatically. In other words, it's not used as the farm implement. It's used as an idiom. It's used as a description. So because of that, it's proper to think of Jesus' yoke as his set of teachings on how to be human. So the thing that made Jesus' yoke unique wasn't the fact that Jesus had a yoke. Every rabbi had a yoke. What made Jesus' yoke unique was that Jesus had a what yoke? An easy yoke. Now, the second thing every rabbi had was students. That makes sense, right? If you're a teacher, you need to have students. Or, more accurately, apprentices, methetes. We know them as disciples. But the Hebrew word for student is talmidim. And to be one of Jesus' talmidim meant to apprentice under Jesus. It meant to organize and build your life around these three goals. To be with Jesus, your teacher. To be like Jesus as your teacher. And to do what Jesus would do if he were you. That's what a Talmudim would do. The whole point of a Jesus apprenticeship is to model all of your life after Jesus. And in doing so, to recover your soul 
and to experience healing in the deepest parts of your being. That's what it meant to experience life to the full. Remember, Jesus said, I have come so they might have life and they might have it to the full. That's what it means to experience salvation. Comer does an interesting thing here. He points out that the Greek word that we translate salvation is the word soteria. And that's the same word we translate as healing. So when we're reading the New Testament and we read that somebody was healed by Jesus, and then we read that somebody else was saved by Jesus, we're reading the same Greek word, soteria. Salvation is healing, which makes sense. If you think about it, and you know I love this sort of stuff, the etymology, that's a study of the words, study of word origin. So the etymology of our English word salvation comes from the Latin word for salve, like salve, like an ointment that you apply to a burn or a wound in order to heal it. So that's what Jesus was all about, healing people at a soul-deep level. And how is that healing accomplished? By apprenticeship to him. Everywhere Jesus went, he offered the same invitation. He said, come follow me. Come be my apprentice. All right, so with all that in mind, let's look at Jesus' invitation Two people to come and apprentice under him. Ready? Here we go. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, there it is, upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. All right, so now I want to read that again, but I'm going to read it from a different translation. I'm going to read it from a translation known as the message. The message is what we call a Bible paraphrase. It's not translated word for word. Uh, it was written by one man. Usually Bibles are translated by committee. It's written by one guy. His name was Eugene Peterson. He was a pastor. He passed away just a few years ago. But he wrote this Bible paraphrase called the message. I know a bunch of you guys read that, but listen to how this sounds in the message. This is going to be really cool. Watch this. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Oh. You feel that? It's like a... Oh. Feel all the pressure just going out of you when you read that? Ah. This is the invitation of Jesus. The invitation for everyone who's tired, who's stressed out, who's burned out, who's stuck in I-95 traffic, who's facing a work deadline, who's facing a school deadline, who's thinking there's just not enough coffee, there just aren't enough energy drinks out there that's going to get me through this day. Does anyone not feel all of that? This is Jesus' invitation to take up his yoke, to move through life at his side, learning from him how to shoulder the weight of life with ease, how to step out of the life on the treadmill that we live and step into the life that offers rest for your soul. Do that with me one more time. Go like this. Oh, that feel good. We don't do that enough. It's funny, my watch tells me to do that every so often now. I don't know how to turn it off. It's really annoying. Yeah. I don't turn it off. I leave it there. And are you thinking, are you serious? <laughs> like, come on, Russell, really? You don't even do it. 
Are you thinking, yeah, we get it, but that's kind of a fantasy, isn't it? That would be wonderful, for sure, but how can anyone actually do that? Especially in the world as it is today. And if you're thinking that, I'm thinking it too. I'm right there with you. That's why I told you up front what I'm like. I don't live like that. I'm not a relaxed person. It's not yet a reality in my world. Remember I told you I didn't want to preach this series? And then I told you I needed to preach this series? This is why. This is so important and so profound, but it's also so hard to do. And, and what we do is we try to do it by insisting on doing it our way without changing the way that we've done things. Dallas Willard, we talked about him last week. He explained what living the life of the easy yoke requires. So take a look at this. The secret of the easy yoke involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully, we know all that, but while living the rest of our lives just like everybody else around us lives them. It's not going to work. That strategy is bound to fail. Or as Comer put it, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. I, I used to work with a pastor who was incredibly fit. You couldn't miss it. Everybody noticed. You could not notice how fit this guy was. And I remember one day I was standing in the church kitchen. I'm getting a cup of coffee. Coworker came up to me and sighed like this. I wish I looked like him. I turned to my coworker and I said, you want to look like him? Follow him around for a week and do all the things he does. Eat like him, train like him, sleep like him. Do it for a year. Guess what? You'll look just like him. What happened? My coworker went like this. Shoulders dropped, head dropped. He walked away depressed. He wasn't going to do all of that. And that's kind of the same way we approach Jesus. We want his joy. We want his peace through uncertainty. We want his unanxious presence, his relaxed manner, his focus on the important things. We're just not willing to adopt his lifestyle. And it's not entirely our fault. We've been trained to be this way, particularly by the Western church. We've been trained by the church that being a Jesus follower is all about thinking the right way. It's all about understanding the right way. But we haven't really been trained in living the right way. Peterson once commented about the Western church that we learn a lot about the truth of Jesus, but we learn almost nothing about the way of Jesus. Jesus didn't leave it out. Remember when Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, through the way and the truth. Our lives are a direct result of our lifestyles. And we're getting lousy results in life because we're living lousy lifestyles. Our lives are off balance because the way that we've organized our routines and our schedules and our budgets and our relationships to the computer or to the phone or to the television, the way we manage our resources, our time, our money, our attention, all those things are off balance for us. We come to church and we to hear all these lofty things. I want to hear a lot of lofty things about living a new life and living a life of peace and a life of trust and a life of faith, all for the glory of God. Amen. And then we go home and we end up doing everything exactly the way we've always done them. Isn't that the definition of insanity? Like it or not, we're stuck in a loop. 
and it's slowly killing us. And if we want all that Jesus has to offer, we're going to need to do something differently. We're going to need to adopt Jesus' teachings and his ethics and his lifestyle. Now, while going through life, yoke to Jesus doesn't guarantee an easy life. Life in this sinful plane is never going to be easy. Jesus does promise us an easy yoke, an easy way to travel through this challenging world. Comer said it this way. He said, Jesus doesn't offer us escape. Jesus offers us equipment. And though nothing will take away the pain of life, Jesus does offer us a way to make our way through it with joy. You see, an easy life isn't an option. An easy yoke, however, is. Jesus modeled it over and over and over again. Go back and read your Gospels. Jesus was never rushed. He was never stressed. He was never in one place physically, but in another place mentally. I know I'm speaking to this crowd, but i got another one coming up at 5 o'clock. And Jesus was always in the moment. He was always present. Jesus was metered. Jesus took time to celebrate, and he also took time to rest and to recharge. Jesus was thoroughly invested in the people around him. Jesus modeled an unhurried life where space for God and love for people were his top priorities. And because he said yes to the Father and to God's kingdom, he constantly said no to other invitations. And he's invited us to do the exact same thing, to follow him. So what does it mean to follow Jesus, to apprentice under Jesus? It means to live like Jesus lived, to live under the same rules of life as Jesus. Jesus said it this way in John 15, abide in me and I in you. Abide, another word for abode, another word for place to live, okay? Abide in me, live in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This means that the rule of life as a Jesus follower is not just to know and not just to believe and say the right things. The rule of life as a follower of Jesus means to live the way that Jesus modeled, to live the right way. So here's another useful analogy that Comer made. Jesus used the imagery of a vineyard for his teaching. Now, the English word rule comes from the Latin word regula. By the way, if the, rule, if the word rule makes you uncomfortable, if it bothers you, it bothers me more, I promise. But stay with me. Now, the word regula can mean a straight piece of wood. Think like a ruler. But it also can mean a trellis. The picture I've showed you is a trellis. A trellis is the structure through which and around which a grapevine grows. And without the structure, without the trellis to hold it up, the grapevine can't properly grow and can't bear the fruit that it was designed to bear. So what a trellis is to a vine, the rule of life is to abiding. Without the necessary structure underneath, without the necessary schedule and set of practices, it is impossible to follow Jesus' direction to abide in him. We need that structure from Jesus' life in order for us to live our lives in and for him, in order for us to abide in him. 
If a vine doesn't have a trellis, it will die. And if our lives with Jesus don't have some kind of structure to facilitate our health and growth, our lives will wither away too. Following Jesus has to make it into our schedules. It has to make it into our practices or it just won't happen. But I want you to know, apprenticeship to Jesus will remain a lofty idea but not a life-giving reality in our lives if we fail to do that. Following Jesus is something you do. It is a practice just as much as it is a faith. Following Jesus means having a relationship with Jesus, a real relationship. And relationships require us to do certain things over a period of time. Now, this brings us to the end of our time today. And as we wrap up, I want to do two things. The first thing I want to do is this. I want to answer this question. Are you ready to construct a trellis for your vine? Are you ready to schedule some practices into your life in order to create some margin, to create some space for a life with Jesus, to make room for the love and the joy and the peace, to make room for those things to become your default settings? Are you ready to rearrange your days so that Jesus' rule of life becomes your new normal? You don't have to answer that today, but I'd ask that you take a few minutes this week to think about it, okay? And now for the second thing. I want to do something to get us started in this direction today. Up here on either side of me, you see two tables that I've set up for, I'm going to call it a self-directed communion. So after I say our closing prayer, I'm going to invite every Jesus follower up here. Every person who's recognized their own sin and has felt that calling from God to turn from their sins to Jesus, who paid the penalty for that sin with his life by dying on the cross, and who came back from the dead in order to return to the Father with a promise of one day coming back to usher in God's kingdom here on earth. I'm going to invite all of the Jesus followers, and if that doesn't yet describe you, that's totally cool. Stay in your seat and meditate and all that and by the way if just now when I said all that you said I'm in come on up but I'm going to invite all Jesus' followers to come up here I'm not going to send you off by lines or by rows I'm just going to say wander on up you know, pick a side come on up take a moment up here to give thanks for what God has done for us take a piece of bread and recall how Jesus' body was broken take a cup remembering how Jesus' blood was shed to wash away our sins. Take those and go back to your seat or stand in a corner, stand in the back of the room together with your family, by yourself, however you want to do it, no rush. And just give God a minute. Give God a blink. Give God a thank you, God. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for the peace you give me. Thank you for the guidance. Thank you for helping me get my life back on track, whatever it is. Eat the bread, drink your cup. You can head out in the lobby and grab your coffee and snacks, or you can head out into that world I just scared you about and continue your Sunday. You got all that? All right, so I'm going to pray, and then you can start coming up for communion. Father God, we thank you for the hard words of slowing down. We thank you for guiding us away from the way the world is and toward the way that you've built and created for us and brought to us. Thank you for the way of Jesus 
Thank you for the way to reconnect. Thank you for the way to experience eternity with you. God, allow us to begin to slow down, to feel your presence in everything we do, and devote less of our time to the silliness and more of our time to you. God, we love you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.